If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to be continuing our walk through Acts chapter 9, and we're going to pick up really in verse 10, but we'll grab verse 9 as a, as a freebie here to remind us of our context last week. And Saul, after he was radically changed on the way to Damascus from Jerusalem, a 150-mile journey, passing all of the territories and heading just outside of Israel, he, was, he met the Lord there and was blinded by his glory. He was, he was thrown to the ground. He was rebuked for his actions. And that's where we pick up in verse 9. And Saul was three days without sight, and he didn't eat anything, and he didn't drink anything. And now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. That just makes me smile a little bit. Have you ever just seen a street or something named, uh, just an obvious name, like Phil's Hardware. Hey, Phil, what are we going to call your store? Phil's Hardware. Okay, I'm the only one. This is a straight street. So they called it Straight Street because it is a straight street. And inquire at the house of Judas. We'll talk about that this evening. For a man from Tarshish, talk about that this evening, named Saul, and he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias, come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. He is famous how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has the authority from the chief priest with extradition papers still in a saddlebag to bind all who call on your name and bring them back to Jerusalem. And the Lord said to him, I don't care. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine I bear my na- to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming to destroy us, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and... Here it is, the second out of the third time, a delaying of the impartation of the Holy Spirit through the laying of hands because there's, a, there's some new ground being broken here and, and people are going to want this authenticated to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. We'll talk about that tonight. And he regained his sight and he got up and he was baptized. And then he took food and was strengthened. Let's ask God's blessing. And we'll walk through this together. Gracious Lord, um, thank you for this opportunity that we take for granted. We take for granted because we don't know anything else. It's hard for us to value freedom when we've, when we've never known oppression. To value dinner without knowing starvation. To value your bride without ever having a lack of access to her. To valuing you because we were raised in the presence of your name. Father, I confess my sins in front of this body. 
pray that you will glorify yourself. And like always, Lord, I ask one request. That we would know your son. That we would know Christ. That we would know how holy he is and how sinful we are. And that infinite gap in between is what makes him so precious. Forgive us, Lord, for losing sight of that as we are reminded through Saul today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Teach me, Lord. Though I've spent many hours in this text, without your Spirit, I am at best blind and ignorant. So teach me. And so, Father, I pray these things and I ask these things in your Son's precious name. And if you are with us this morning, say amen. And if you, <laughs> right, my amen corner. Where was that? Was it my amen corner? Oh, it was, it was you guys, the boys right here? No? These three. I like these three. Keep it up, all right? Whenever it gets too quiet in here, you just let it rip. Here we go. With a reason, Sam, you're in charge. All right. We left last week looking for Saul, looking at Saul. He had secured papers from the high priest to persecute and bring back Christians to Jerusalem. And, and as, as they were known back then, to bring back people of the way. He was filled with murderous hate and he rode hard 150 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus with no other reason that there were a lot of believers there for him to gather up and devour. And on his way to persecute the church, Jesus appears to him. He knocks him to the ground. Jesus rebukes him with his words. He bind, blinds him with his glory. And because of because it pleases Jesus, because it pleases him, he takes the heart of Saul. He takes the heart of Saul from this man and imparts salvation and transforms his life. Saul started out racing towards Damascus as a powerful man filled with hate, seeking to destroy the church. And he will arrive there like a helpless child, blind, weak, and being led by the hand as a new member of this church. My friends, our first application already falls into our laps, and here it is. Are you ready? Here it is. God is in control of all things. Amen? He's in control of everything, including your eternity. And that ought not to scare us. It ought to encourage us because God is all-powerful and he's all-sovereign. And your salvation is in his ability, not your, my, or our ability. And it is here that we begin to walk through the text. Here's where we must start. Saul has seen Jesus. He has truly met the glorified Son of God. And the first thing that hits him above everything else, and we'll see this in the, within the text as we walk through this, what hits him above everything else is his total depravity, his sinfulness. He realized that his, his life was utterly wrong. We see this in the words that we see right here. He was three days where he neither ate nor did he drink. 
Now, while I'm sure this experience on the road to Damascus would have been overwhelming, I know every one of us, if we were knocked off our horse, blinded by glory, rebuked by the divine, and and were blinded in all that, we would go into some sort of shock. It would be overwhelming. It's important here to realize, however, that fasting three days within biblical narrative is an expression of repentance. Three days of fasting was an expression of repentance. Nehemiah chapter 1, Jeremiah chapter 14, but it also included a desire to have further communication with God. All right? Now, we can safely conclude that these three days were an act of repentance and, and, and not just a time of shock. We can see that because within here, uh, Luke makes sure to understand that, let us know that for three days he has been praying, repenting of his sins and wanting to hear from God. When added together, Saul is repenting in prayer in his sins and is seeking further communication, which brings us to our next application. Now let me be clear, all right? The more we know the person of Christ, the more we become overwhelmed with our sinfulness. I want you to grab that. The more we know the person of Christ, the more his light, the more his truth, the more his person, his divinity, shows us our need and we become overwhelmed with our sins. The closer we walk with the light, the more the light reveals the darkness of our hearts. My friends, we live in a day and age that seeks to minimize our guilt and maximize our value before God. And in doing so, we have inadvertently created cheap, shallow, and dare I say it, false followers of Jesus Christ. Now let me be clear. Let me be clear. Because if there's one thing Baptists are known for, it's how encouraging our messages are. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Now we got another one. No, sometimes, and you're right, I hope that we are encouraged, but sometimes it can be like sin, death, you know. Let me be clear here. We are precious in the sight of God. Amen, church? We are precious in the sight of God. We are children of the King. We are loved by God. We are cherished by God. And we don't want those truths to fade away in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I want to elevate those truths by saying this. But these truths of being precious and children of the King and love and cherish, these truths mean very little. They mean nothing if we have nothing to contrast them with. And the contrast is our sinful hearts. It is only when we realize the depth of our sins that we can fully realize the value of the immeasurable grace and mercy of our Lord Allow me to share a theological yet practical truth that because of its absence has killed the depth of the commitment within the church today. In our attempt to exalt our value before God while minimizing the depth of our sinfulness, we have created shallow, false conversions. Charles Spurgeon said this, Today we have so many within the church that are built up who have never been pulled down. 
Many filled that were never emptied. Many exalted who were never humbled. That I may implore you today, church, that the Holy Spirit must convince us of our sins before we can truly know the value of our salvation. My, all right. My friends, here is the point. Our value of Christ, our passion for Christ. I just want you to grab that word. Your, my, our. But let's use that second person plural pronoun. Your, and I'm part of that. Your passion for Christ is directly linked to our understanding of the depth of our sinfulness and our need for Him. And the more we understand who we are, and the more we understand who He is, the more we are overwhelmed with joy the more irreplaceably precious Christ is to us. This is, by the way, the secret of joyful Christianity. How many here would love to see a church filled with the joy of Christ in their lives rather than judgmental bitterness in our lives? How many would like to see that contrast flipped around? Amen? To see joy when people walk in here, they see people who are living lives far better than they ever deserved. This is the joy, the secret of joy in Christianity. I am more and more convinced because of looking in the mirror, and maybe, maybe you can see this in the mirror as well. I am more and more convinced that the reason the church is filled with joyless judgmental, indifferent people is because we have maximized our value and minimized our need. You see, without a clear understanding of our depravity, we can never fully appreciate our salvation. Here's a general truth I'm about to share with you. Now, this is a general truth. There are exceptions to this. There are, um, and I'll just say it out here, how many here have ever witnessed spoiled, entitled, wealthy, rich children? Anyone at all? In America, just about all of our hands ought to go up by the world standards. But let's make West Michigan standards here. Now, I want you to know there are exceptions. There are wealthy parents who make sure their children work and have skin in the game and learn to pay bills and don't give them everything and make them, make them understand the value of a dollar. But generally speaking, if I could go to a, a stereotype here, rich kids have no idea how good they have it. Can I get a witness? <laughs> you ever seen a rich kid complain about the new car their parents bought them? It's got cloth seats. Doesn't have satellite, satellite XM Cassette track radio. I don't know what they have anymore. Eight tracks. How many here remember eight tracks, huh? You could have up to four of them in your car at a time. You know, it was like you were replacing a transfuser or something. How many here remember taking a, a pencil to your cassette tapes and winding your, your music up because it got, got a little, little slagged in there? Oh, my parents didn't get me four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive. No satellite radio. Let me tell you something. My first car did not have a floor. It was a 1980 banana yellow Chevette with 240,000 miles on it that took more oil than gasoline, and it topped out at 45 miles an hour before you vibrated into oblivion. And I loved it. It was the first car I ever had. And my parents, 
made me buy my own car. And because I bought it, and it was mine, my first one, it had no floor. I had to put a piece of OSB board on the bottom, all right, and kind of stomp it down right there, and it kind of interfered with the brakes and the gas, but we got through it, all right? You want to know why that car was valuable to me? Because I remember very well there was a time when I did not have a what? So it becomes valuable. Oh, that scratched an itch. You ever listen to privileged children complain about how their brand name clothes stink while they have nothing to wear, while their closets are overflowing? Here's a question. I want you to answer this. Why do privileged children, and frankly, we could go adults, could we not? I don't think it's found within the pastorate, but I'm trying to relate Why do privileged children complain about things when they have everything made available to them? Talk to me. What's that? We're going to start with you. What did you say? They didn't have to pay anything. I saw something over here. Parents. Parents. Yes, always the parents' fault. Yes, Jordan. There it is. They have never known not having it. They have never known life absent from what they have. Did you know that that translates spiritually? People who have never known life absent from the trappings of Jesus. People who have never known life without knowing the name of Jesus and His moral standard and all of that often struggle to see His infinite worth. I am convinced over and over over again. The hardest place to find Jesus Christ is under the shadow of the cross. Whereas those who know life without Christ, those who truly know life without Christ are overwhelmed by His grace, overwhelmed by His love, and overwhelmed by His mercy. And I am thankful that we have some people here in this church who are like that. In fact, I want you to hear from one of them right now. Matt, if you want to make your way up. This is Matt Sally. And I have asked Matt Sally, who was saved later in life, who knows what it's like to borrow from your answers, who knows what it's like to know life absent from Christ, to take the next two minutes to share who he was before Christ, who he was after Christ, and why Christ is so precious to him. It's all yours, Matt. Good morning. Um, It's always a very humbling thing, giving your testimony, Um, and I guess... Every journey is a beginning. Mine was, I was about 30, well, I was 33 years of age. Car broke down. Met a mechanic. He invited me to church. His name was Bill Damon. And for over a month, I'd pull into the church parking lot. The bell would ring. I'd scoot on home. One day, he came out and said, come on in. I go, how did you know I was out here? He goes, I had a gut feeling. When I walked into that church, I felt out of place. Totally out of place. I remember the pastor was walking up front. And I, I, I had this sense, how, and I went to the pastor, how do you know Jesus Christ was real? And he leaned back against the wall, then continued up the pulpit. Felt totally out of place. And I wanted to flee, but I couldn't. Then after church, a gentleman came up to me who heard me talk to the pastor, and he prayed with me. I went home, went out back, knowing I've lied, 
stolen, adultery, blasphemy, coveted, all the commandments I broke. And when I was out back in the woods, I tried to cover myself with leaves out of shame. And I felt this great love come upon me because I cried out to the Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I got up and I just felt this tremendous love because I've broken every one of God's laws. Christ sought me out. The most wretched person. When Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, I think of myself. Because I was a terrible sinner. You would want, not want to be my neighbor. If you left your wallet out, I would steal it. But I am not judged. I'm glorified with Christ Jesus. He brought fear into my life. Fear is something we don't hear a lot about. But once we come to the Lord, because Jesus himself said that he has a son in his life, he who does it, the wrath of God remains upon him. What a horrible thing that is. But his perfect love cast away my fear. Christ has saved a, a wretched soul like me. I'm eternally grateful for that. I'm saved by grace. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm loved. I'm actually, the Bible says I'm part of a royal priesthood. What could be better than that? And every day, how precious is the blood of Jesus Christ to me? Every day, I look at the mirror, and Mary knows. Being saved at 33, I look back at who I was. And who I am now. I was saved by his grace, his work he did on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection. And it's nothing to do with me. It's about bringing him glory. The Lord's come to seek and to save that which was lost. And I was lost. Again, I was the most horrific person you'd want to know. And his blood and his sacrifice is so precious to me when I look at myself in the mirror Every day, every morning when I get up to pray, sometimes Satan will say, he, he can't love you. But his word says he does, and he is true and faithful. Let God be true and every man a liar. And I take that, and I know that I share every day with someone. I don't, if it's at the mall, if it's at the store, if it's at the gas station, there's always a chance to share what God has done in my life with them. That's how precious the blood of Jesus Christ is to me. What he's done for me is a debt I can never repay. And I'm not saved by any works done in righteousness, but I'm saved by his righteousness and his grace to do good works that will glorify him. And it's the hardest thing sometimes to remember who you were. And then rejoice in who you are. Because what I want give. To have heard that call at a younger age. But again, it's about bringing God the glory. Thank you. Thank you, Matt.
The church can easily become a place of snobby, privileged children who do not know the value of grace or the person of Jesus Christ because they have never known a life without His influence. Here's my point, and I hope you saw it in Matt's testimony. Contrast is what brings value. Contrast is what often brings value. My friends, you can only appreciate the diamond after staring at the worthless piece of coal. You can only fully appreciate a meal after experience starvation, warmth after hypothermia, wealth only after poverty. Oh, hear me, my friends. Let us not look to minimize our sin, but rather to maximize our understanding of just how far we fall short of the glory of God. And then in staring at that infinite gap, we might be overwhelmed with the contrast that I was once lost, but now I am found. I was blind but now I see. I was dead and now I was alive. I was condemned and now I am redeemed. I was guilty but now I am acquitted. Oh praise be to God for truly His mercies when we look at this endure forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever again. Amen! How dare we wallow in the waters of His grace just to spit it out. And for three days, Saul repented. And then there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now this is all that we're told about him. May I peel back a layer of redemption here? Saul has been saved and he is in the middle of repenting. And God sends Ananias. You want to know what the name Ananias means? It literally means God is gracious. Oh, the beautiful imagery of the word of God. If ever there was a case of grace, it certainly is here. Truly, no detail is out of the hands of God. And Ananias said, here I am, Lord. I'm right here. Again, there is no separation from the term Savior and Lord. See that? Here I am, my rabbit's foot. Here I am, my get out of car jail free. Here I am, my fire insurance policy. No. Here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. To receive Jesus as your Savior is to receive His authority in your life as Lord. They are inseparable. To not have one is to not have either. Now it's important to know that Jesus is not interested in our comfort and ease when it comes to His will and authority. And the Lord said to him, this is in between the lines, I don't care. Get up, go. To that really straight street. What do they call it? Straight street. And inquire at a house of Judas. We'll talk about who that was tonight. For a man named Tarsus, named Saul, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. A man and Ananias will come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, this would be as if the Lord came to you and said, I want you to visit the head leader of ISIS. And I want you to lay your hands on this man. 
And I want you to pray over him in the name of Jesus Christ. I think most of us would go, let's pray about that. Let's study that. Let's put a committee together. Let's research that. Let's have a small group fellowship over that. Let's do everything around it except for what? That. Hmm. There's some application here we can pick up real quick. I got to roll. Here we go. We know Ananias is ready to obey. We see that in his answers. Here I am, Lord. Send me. These are the same words of Abraham and the same words of Samuel. We find that in Genesis 22, 1 Samuel chapter 3. You can almost, if I could, see Ananias kind of congratulate himself within his heart and his spirit that, that he has quoted these two great saints that, that he has read about his whole life. But let us watch the good intentions break down just a little bit. Here I am, Lord. I'm ready to obey as long as what you tell me to do is where I have already predetermined I am willing to go. That's not obedience. Watch these good intentions break down. Can you see Ananias grab a pen? Someone got a pen? Extra pen? Anyone? What's a... <laughs> Cannot. You know what? You guys are mean to me. You know that? Matt talks for two minutes. Round of applause. I catch something out of the air like an eagle flying with wings and a block. Now, thank you, Paul. One missionary guy gives me a... Can you see Ananias grab a pen? Here I am, Lord, send me. What do you got? What do you got for me? And he starts writing furiously here. All right, where, where do you want me to go? I want, I want you to go to a, a street. What's the name of it? Straight Street. Okay, we're going to go Straight Street. Got it. And there's this man from Tarshish. All right, man from Tarshish. Got it. All right, seat of a, a, a governor, a, a Roman governor. And if you're born there, you're already, already granted Roman citizenship. We'll talk about that tonight. So straight street, uh, Tarshish. Yep, that sounds good. What house am I looking at? Oh, a guy named Judas. You know what? I know Judas on straight street. I can get that right there. That's great. Easy find. Sounds good. And his name? Saul. Can you see him stop writing? Saul from Tarshish? That was all good till that point. We tend to want to follow God if He is leading us where we already want to go, where we desire, what we want, how we feel. My friends, obedience begins when we obey that which is not easy or that which is not pleasing to our eye. May I ask you a simple question? Are you, am I, are we obeying we too get out our pads of paper from God's Word, do we not? We too get out our pad of paper and pen and we say, Okay, Lord, here am I. Send me. And, they, and the Lord says, I want you to love your children. Oh, yep. oh, love our children. Yep, absolutely. Double underline. Yes, Lord. And I want you to provide for their needs. Absolutely. I'm going to provide for my children's needs and their desires and their wants and that car and that and that and that and that. Because if God wants me to do this, how much more am I pleasing God if I do all of these things here? Okay, got that. And I want you to spend quality time with family and friends. Yep, 
Got that, Lord? That's good. And, and I want you to find time, margin time of rest and restoration and rejuvenation. Oh, yep, margin time, Sabbath rest. Got that here. Anything else? Lord? I want you to edify the church. I want you to serve the body. I want you to sacrificially give of your resources. I don't want you to forsake the assembling of my bride. I want you to serve the weak, love the lost, help the poor. I want you to obey your spiritual leaders. Why did we stop writing? Obedience and submission is not measured by following that which we agree with, but submitting to that which is difficult because the object of our love is greater than the cost. Jesus' lordship is found in following Him when it's difficult, not easy. This is where we find out, by the way, if we truly are the Lord's. So Ananias does what, what we like to do. This is what we like to do. We like to show God where maybe He doesn't quite understand everything. How many here have ever been guilty of that? I have. You know, I understand where you're coming from, Lord, but I'm not sure you've taken a full account of what's going on here. We disagree. We show God maybe some shortcomings, maybe something he's not aware of. And why not fully submitting is actually obeying him better. Look at, look at Ananias. Lord, I've heard a lot about this man. Maybe you haven't heard. Maybe you haven't heard. I know you're busy up there preparing a place for us so that you can come back. You've got to be busy up there. But this guy, I'm not sure you know everything here. Do you know how much harm he has done to your saints, your holy set-apart ones in Jerusalem? And he's here now. Rumor has it. Because he's got authority from the chief priest with extradition papers to take people like me who call on your name, people of the way, back to Jerusalem to be persecuted, to go through conversion therapy, or to be killed. And by the way, we'll get on this tonight. But Ananias is described as someone who observed the law and was highly esteemed in the church. Ananias would have been a primary target of Saul. This isn't some strange third-person party. Allow me to summarize what Ananias says here. He says, I don't want to. I like how John MacArthur describes it in his book. He says, this request appears to Ananias as suicidal. But look at, look at the response. To his credit, Ananias, we look at his response, and we see it in verses 15 through 19. And this, here's the response here that we see. Now, there's a lot in these verses that we'll get to, uh, we will not be able to get through this morning, but we will touch on them tonight in our digging deeper. But for now, what I want you to focus in on is God says, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Saul would have been the least likely candidate for salvation. The least likely candidate for salvation. I want you to grab this for many reasons, but I want to give you one that we may have lost sight of. Yes, Saul was full of rage. Saul was full of hate. He murdered Stephen. He was against Christianity. He was against people of the way. But let us not forget that Saul, that Saul thought that he was already one of God's chosen people. 
Saul already thought he was found. He was already one of the chosen people. And he thought he was serving Yahweh. Here's the point. The hardest people to reach with the gospel are those who think they are already found. Wow. Does that describe the church today? Does this describe us in any way? The most difficult place to find Christ is when you are surrounded by the trappings of Him your whole life and you know no contrast. I want you to see a truth about our salvation exposed in this conversion of Saul here. Here it is. Christ is always the initiator. When God calls, people will yield. The Bible says, no one seeketh after God. And if you learned it in Awana, no, not one. If Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, the Bible tells us that man cannot and will not believe in Christ unless or repent unless it is granted to him as a gift from God. Because we are dead. With this truth in mind, how silly is it for the church to design its ministry around being seeker-sensitive? If no one seeks after God, how many seekers will enter these doors? My friends, the church is to be a designed, should be designed for the elect of God, people of the way, believers. Here it is to grow, mature, and edify one another. The church is for the found, to grow that they may follow the example of Jesus and leave these doors during the week like Matt brought out and seek the lost that the Father is already drawing. It is God who seeks, it is not man. In fact, look who God sends to seek Saul. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying hands on him, what a beautiful picture of obedience. I think we sometimes run past this. Can you see the hands of Ananias? He's still human, okay? And there's the leader of ISIS, okay? A little hyperbolic language there. But there's Saul, and there's Ananias, and he's, he's walking towards Saul. How, how many can see his hands shaking just a little bit? But what should explode in our face in these next set of words, my church family, as people of the way, may we see and apply this. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has appeared to you on the road which you were coming. He sent me to give you your sight back and to fill you with the Holy Spirit. I want you to focus on the words here, Brother Saul. Brother Saul, Adelphi. Now before we move on, let us remember that Saul had a reputation Ananias almost certainly knew young women who had been widowed because of him, men who were imprisoned because of him, children who had been orphaned because of this man. Yet Ananias reaches out and puts his hands on Saul, and I want you to grab this. In fact, I want you to answer this question. What does Ananias' name mean? God is what? Gracious. Are you gracious? Am I? Ananias places his hands on Saul and he calls him brother. This is unfathomable just a day ago, three days ago. The extradition papers from the high priest to persecute believers 
still lay in Saul's saddlebag. My friends, we must be people who forgive and show grace to one another, for we are brothers and sisters in Christ who have all been forgiven so much. Now, this doesn't mean that all consequences evaporate immediately. I'm sure the Apostle Paul was not immediately put in charge of the orphanage in Damascus. It is highly unlikely um, that they placed him in charge of, of the protection of the church immediately. But Ananias, in fact, even the apostles were slow and weary of him. But Ananias understood that this flawed man was his brother who, who, who loved and forgave because here it is, Ananias understood that he had been loved and forgiven much himself. Now one more point and we'll be done. He regained his sight and got up and was baptized. Here's a reoccurring theme. He got up and was baptized. And, and then he took food and was strengthened. Here's a question. What was the first thing Saul did when he got his sight back? It wasn't eating. It wasn't drinking. Three days without eating. Clearly, this is pre-Baptist, but it's the station, all right? He hasn't eaten anything. He hasn't drinking anything. And he gets his sight back. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, all right? And, and, and he is saved. And his first words were, what's for dinner? Was that his first words? No. What was his first words? I want to be baptized. I have a Lord. I have an authority. I've spent three days in all of the... No one knew Scripture like Saul, by the way. He has the Old Testament down. And for three days, he is repenting and praying in all of these Old Testament Scriptures that he has memorized because he's been memorizing the Shema as a good, as a good Jewish student is exploding in his mind. And now all those verses have an answer because all things are in Christ in the Old Testament. All of them are pointing towards Christ and they're exploding in his mind. That suffering servant in Isaiah is Jesus Christ. That serpent lifted up in the wilderness is Jesus Christ. And he says, I have to obey. Obedience to Saul was more important than the food and the water he needed. It reminds me of Jesus' words when Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Do we understand that to accept Jesus as Savior is to accept the authority that he brings with him? And that authority is like the food we eat and the air we breathe. Here it is, my friends. If obedience to Christ is like the food we eat, are our bellies full? Do we hunger for it? You know, baptism is an indication that we are responsive to the gospel. Obedience to Christ starts with baptism. Obedience to Christ starts with baptism and is lived out after. We just got done studying the Ethiopian eunuch who, who when he saw the water, said, what did he say? What did he say? Anyone remember? Is there a reason why I can't do this right here? And we said, well, you have to take a 12 class. All right, we got to get you a certificate. We're going to get your picture taken. No, he was baptized. Saul, who's breathing out murderous hate against the church, and Jesus now openly unites himself with the very people he hated. And I need you to grab this because it's always dangerous to talk in universal language, but it can be done here. In keeping with every single consistent pattern of every believer in all of the New Testament, Saul's baptism was an act of obedience that followed his salvation. The Ethiopian eunuch 
was baptized after his salvation. The 2,000 in Jerusalem were baptized after salvation. The 3,000 baptized after salvation. People often ask me the question, what is one of the strongest evidences that I truly belong to Christ? Well, one answer is found right here and in every inch of the Bible. The mark of a truly redeemed person is a desire to obey Christ and to be with fellow believers. He publicly identifies, I'm with them, I'm with them. He's got a whole cohort of people whose mouths are dragging on the ground, can't believe what they're saying. And he says, I abandon this all and I identify with these. The mark of a truly redeemed person is a desire to be with fellow believers. 1 John 3.14 says this, We know that we have passed from death, spiritual death, to spiritual life. We know that we have passed from one to the other because we love Christians. We love the brethren. He who does not love the brethren still abides in spiritual death. Now, we, 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 we kind of grimace at that in our rich, entitled Christianity that we have here in Grand Rapids because we haven't known anything. We don't value the church because we've never known life without the church. We don't value Christ because we don't remember life without Christ. Are you saying that, that if I'm not, no, I'm not saying nothing. The Holy Spirit is saying it for us. You want to know why? Because this kind of heart reflects the heart of God. God dwelt amongst us, Emmanuel, not because we were so amazing and so attractive and on the way to his to-do list already, but because he found joy in loving us sacrificially. Let me ask you a question. Is this one of the most precious and favorite times of your life right now? Right now. Is this one of your precious favorite times of your life right now? Surrounded by other believers, centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, living sacrificially towards one another, singing to one another the great truths of who he is, eating at the buffet of obedience, no matter how ugly we may be from time to time. And I want to hear a witness. Lord knows we can be ugly from time to time. Amen? And that's just me. I could... Now let's move forward, all right? But here it is. No matter how ugly we may be from time to time, we love the brethren because we all share in the beauty of Jesus Christ. So let me be clear. You should know and love unbelievers. I have many close friends who do not know the Lord in any way, shape, or form, and they are precious to me. But they don't hold a candle to the bride of Christ. I want to make a potent statement and then we will close with this that I would stand by. If you, as a professing believer, prefer the company of the world over the church, it is almost certainly because you are still of the world. Cannot separate Christ from his bride. You know, Ananias was one of those ambiguous characters of the Bible 
Truth is, we will never hear from again in all of the word of God. This is it, blip. Even though he was an instrument in the conversion of one of the greatest evangelisms the world has ever seen, his name will fade into nothing, and the rest of the New Testament will pave over his grave, and Saul will rise and change the world. But isn't that the way? Pastor Hughes says this, Who amongst us knows the name of the man who led Billy Graham to the Lord? What is the name of the person who led D.L. Moody to the Lord or Jim Elliott? The Lord knows, and that is enough. We are not here to gain a great name. We are here to proclaim a great name, Jesus Christ. And if no one ever knows my name, Right, Matt? If no one remembers my name, but Jesus does, that, my friends, is more than enough. This morning, we're going to close a little bit differently. We're going to sing a package of songs that contrast who Jesus is and who we are without Him. And I'm going to encourage you to sing because of the truth of who He is. And who you would be without Him. And when you see who He is, holy and pure, and this one little isolated thread that I can barely separate represents one sin of mine. And I see how holy Christ is and I go through all of these countless, endless themes of threads of sin that goes all over and over and I see how depraved I am trillions there's no depth there's no height there is no vastness I'm just I am a wretched sinner and every thread that I walk by represents who I am without him and view that distance stare at that distance and then then Christ becomes more than a ticket out of hell. More than a Savior, but a Lord. And when you see that contrast, worship. Not because you like the tone of the song, but Him. Gracious Heavenly Father, may our worship be acceptable in Your sight. And Father, I speak not of the song we are about to sing, but the lives we desperately want to live when we leave here. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for who You are. Father, may this room be filled with worship.
in Jesus' name. A name by which no other can be saved. In his name alone, for he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life.